0: Urban Talk is Australia's first community engagement and property development platform. It's a contemporary response to the broken landscape of community consultation and aims to provide vital information to communities about new developments occurring in their neighbourhoods. If you have a development project that needs an online presence or community engagement, head to urbantalk.com.au and contact us to get started. Hello and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. Joining me today, online from Melbourne, is Andrew Butt, the Associate Dean of Sustainability and Urban Planning at RMIT University. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Belinda. Today, with Andrew, we're going to discuss the community tensions arising in our cities in response to housing supply and density issues and on the rural and peri-urban fringe from industrial agricultural practices. Both are very different land use scenarios, but both result in communities living in semi-permanent litigation, stress, and political upheaval. Andrew, much of your teaching and your research has focused on the urban fringe, rural and peri-urban planning issues, it has included investigating how communities react when rural and farming landscapes are under pressure from competing forces. It's a really interesting area. Can you tell me a little bit about what drew you um, to this part of the plan- of planning?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, look, I've been, I mean, I've been involved in planning a- as a practitioner and academic for about 30 years now, and I've been working in various situations, but rural and regional sort of planning issues have been something of an interest to me since the 1990s. I'm particularly interested in the way in which places that are undergoing change and community changing community expectations but also economic and landscape change actually work within a planning system, usually a planning system that's been designed for urban problems uh, and then recast to try and solve some of those bigger landscape scale and, and structural issues that have Really, relationships to global processes of, of economic change, not just the local landscapes.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it is. It's a really interesting area, and I guess until I started reading more of more of your research, I hadn't really taken on board, even though they are very different large scenarios, the similarities and the conflict that is arising in local communities I guess on the peri-urban fringe and and also I'm very aware of what's happening in in our cities with the discussions that are taking place with affordable housing and and housing supply issues. So I I thought in the podcast it'd be good to maybe deal with each of those separately so maybe if we can kick off looking at community tensions that are happening around housing supply and housing density discussions at the present time. You're Victorian-based, I'm in New South Wales but both cities are certainly, it's front and centre of um, planning policy at the moment and it's putting communities, I feel, on edge. You wrote a really excellent opinion piece in The Guardian a couple of months back titled The Demonisation of NIMBYism. Can you briefly tell us about the article and what prompted you to write it?
1: Yeah, look I mean, I think you're right about that, those similarities between those situations too and the, the sense that people have got a, a, an ideal of, of the sorts of places they'd like to live in but equally, sometimes there's other perspectives that suggest that there's, there's a level of entitlement that's undeserved in order to live in the sort of place you want to live in. I mean, that's, that's central to the tension. And the, the, the point I was trying to make in the argument, I suppose, is that, that urban change is fairly complex. Um, it's very complex, in fact. And the processes of urban change that we see aren't just led by kind of individual decisions, but rather bigger structural changes. People have got an investment in the sorts of places they want to live. Many people do, um, and they've seen change and they're disappointed by it often. And, and that's that's not an illegitimate position to have. Um, what we we suggest people in NIMBYs um, that that's problematic. It's a very pejorative term when others might suggest it's simply a mode of place protection. How do I how do I have the sort of place that I'd like to have? Uh, and it's. Obviously, there's big tensions in that because it's sometimes people, you know, effectively shutting the gate behind them, um, it might be framed to have the sort of place they want to have and everyone else can just suffer. But the, the other perspective on that is, well, most people know that when they see new developments around them, that that will mean there'll be more people, but that won't mean there'll be a new school. It means there'll be more people, but it won't mean there'll be new transport services. Um, So, you know, the the lived experience of it is that when your kid's school is bursting at the seams, uh, it's going to be some years, probably by the time they leave, that that issue is resolved. That's what what people are feeling annoyed about. Obviously, you know, not every example is the same. Obviously, there's situations where it might seem that someone is being unreasonably entitled to protect the sort of place they want to live. But we've seen cities, Melbourne, Sydney are good examples, undergoing significant structural change. Um, over 30 years, really, we're seeing a lot more redevelopment. I live in an area where there's been massive amounts of redevelopment even in the last five or so so years, huge amounts in a, in a part of Melbourne that traditionally has been very kind of industrial and has moved rapidly into being highly residential. Um, I I also live quite close to Docklands in Melbourne, an area that for 20 years they built a a, a significant suburban development. It took them 20 years to build a school there, and the schools already using neighbouring properties as overflow classrooms. That's the kind of thing people feel uh, upset about. And if that is entitlement, then it says something about how we want to spend money on supporting communities in our cities.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's very difficult because we don't seem to holistically deal with these issues. We come out and we say we want housing reform and we put a housing reform package on the table. Um, But that you know, as you rightly say, that other part of the equation about the investment that is going to accompany that in community infrastructure just isn't also on the table at the same time. So there is a, a huge black hole. It's very difficult for communities to actually fully consider the matter that is actually being put to them.
1: And it, and it's presented in different ways. I mean, obviously, a lot of planning objections will be centred around things like height or parking or, you know, the classic kind of issues of design Um, I I think that obviously sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but there's also this massive underlying anxiety about change and and the the unfulfilled promises of that change. I mean, in terms of Sydney's planning over the last decade, there's been plenty of examples where I've seen the discussion. I remember some videos around Sydney's metropolitan plans, um, you know, where it was about wouldn't you like to live in a more vibrant city? Well, we all know that that's code for there will be more people in your neighbourhood. Now, it may well make your your neighbourhood more vibrant, it may well make um, public transport services more viable. It may well make local retailing more viable. But equally, we know that many of those services won't actually come to pass. And we see the same on Melbourne's fringe, Sydney's fringe, where that population leads infrastructure often by a generation. You know, Unless we get those things right, then people will continue to complain about the the minor issues of the car parking, um, the design, and you know, certainly we see some very good design and we see some very ordinary design in in medium and high-density housing. But I think at its heart, the anxiety is often about that sense of disempowerment and change. And that's citywide and structural as much as anything else. And it's it's bigger experience of seeing things like another cluster of portables stacked in your local school.
0: In the article, you talk about NIMBYism as being a learned behaviour that's being built upon, I guess. Individuals and communities having very, very, uh, you know, a lot of um, disappointing experiences. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by NIMBYism uh, as a learned behavior?
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, we can we could go back to some classic ideas about how we start to see um, community action around urbanization um, occurring. And we can go back to things like the rocks in Sydney in the early 70s, um, similar examples in Melbourne, particularly from the late 60s, early 70s, around these ideas of community activism. And and, and many of those were cast to be quite bold and radical processes, but to some extent, these days, um, similar sorts of arguments are often cast as being amongst entitled people uh, rather than sort of a bold radical action. Um, Things are not the same. We know that there's, um, you know, NIMBYism, if you like, or or at least place protection strategies amongst, um, you know, Communities of varied socioeconomic characteristics, but the learned behaviour thing isn't just a matter of learning how to do action well. I mean the learned behaviour of of being presented with things which are suboptimal urban solutions and then needing to respond to them and needing to respond to them vigorously. So people come and respond vigorously to these things because it's not a dialogue where they're, ha- they're having a dialogue about nuance. They're, they're put in positions where the dialogue is is all or nothing dialogue against the proposal because they've never been presented with, with optimal proposals. They've always been presented with things that to them feel suboptimal, like a development that's not accompanied with the appropriate infrastructure. Um, And so they they consequently respond. I mean, a lot of the planning, certainly in Victoria and Melbourne right now, a lot of the planning appeals aren't about objections outright to proposals but rather objections to elements where those proposals are really testing the boundaries of what was assumed to be previously agreed in say an urban strategy about height controls for example and suddenly those are those things that the community understood to be agreed um, through, through a strategic process suddenly become tested and pushed to the limits and so they know that the defence is an all or nothing defence against the, the proposal uh, rather than a Rather than if you like a a, a mature com- a conversation about some of the complexities of and intricacies of a design, it becomes an all or nothing debate.
0: Yeah, you you you're absolutely right, and and I think there's been a dilution of almost like scenario planning. I remember when I, when I was way back when I was at university, you know, the sort of the professor talking about that we should be considering uh, before we sort of set policy in style. We should be going through um, a process of considering alternate scenarios. And, you know, again, I feel that that just leads to more robust policy that if, if communities are involved in that type of discussion, that then they can see, you know, just through that process of evolution um, of, of policy that what they do finally get to, they may not, there may not be overwhelming consensus on it, but there generally is a, a much greater understanding of why something then is put in, put in stone.
1: And, and indeed, if it were to be put in stone, people might feel confident too. But often those things are just tested to the limits again. I mean, height controls being one. But you're quite right about that scenario planning. We we live in an era where a lot of large public infrastructure, tran- major transport projects, for example, seem to come from nowhere to communities. So suddenly there's a new project which hasn't been talked about at all. Suddenly pops up a new tunnel, a new you know um, whatever it might be. Often often led by um, as much by commercial interests around tolling as by community need, um, and certainly not by some sort of rigorous and transparent transport planning process. And again, people get like anxious about that. I mean, you, you, we're constructing a system where these anxieties are built into people's experience of the city, and they're normally related to population growth. Let's be clear: this is a this is the the big challenge in planning. Um, often. Doesn't sort of adequately communicate this, but we, we're in an era where cities like Melbourne and Sydney are growing at rates much greater than than the sort of counterparts we might not measure ourselves against in places like Europe, and so we're seeing levels of growth and inadequate provision of, of, of infrastructure to keep up with that growth. That's that's the that's a fundamental dilemma. It, it also creates anxieties, of course, but we don't communicate that very well either. And there's all sorts of um, responsibilities and levels of government. Um, involved in that process so I, I, I do truly feel that we've got ourselves in a situation where the sort of the inability to sort of set some really realistic goals about what we want and what that looks like leads to this constant side by side competition about things because communities understand that if they accept those changes they're not necessarily going to get the dividends that would they would have assumed should come with
0: them yeah no exactly I mean, I know in New South Wales, a couple of years ago, there was a, a requirement for all local councils to go through and prepare what was called local strategic planning statements, which is basically setting a 20 year vision for a local government area. There was a lot of community consultation that was t- undertaken by local councils in preparing those plans. But now, you know, less than three years on, we now have a major political um, push. We have a housing supply crisis, which didn't just come out of thin air. We didn't just suddenly get an affordability crisis. They've always been on the table, but suddenly that is the political momentum that is being pushed. And so that whole process that communities went through in, in setting a 20-year vision is now out the door, essentially. And they're having to now be confronted with a new political reality that you know was never put to them three years ago. That's
1: right. And so we've had similar issues in, in- um, metropolitan Melbourne, um, our urban growth boundaries changed a number of times over the last sort of you know, up until about a decade ago. It's likely to have similar changes to the sorts of development rights and development responsibilities between state and local government, particularly around some key priority sites. I mean, many of those things are possibly quite good ideas, but the fact that they never seem to be communicated um, as a long-term strategy, the fact that the source of strategic work that gets done seems to be overturned quite willingly is... Quite probably what upsets communities, I'm I'm sure of that. And the the other side to it, of course, is that it's responding to the sorts of changes which, as you suggest, are known. Certainly in Victoria, our population projections for the last 20 years or so, official population projections, each time they've been redone, the the previous ones have proved to be underestimates. Um, There seems to be an unwillingness over that time to admit what's likely to happen, but rather try and kind of look for a way to argue that... It won't be as bad as it seems and that's okay because, you know, we won't be spending as much money on things like schools and hospitals as what we probably need. Uh, And so it's a sort of denialism that then comes to play in in reality and people get annoyed about it. Who would have thought?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we're, you know, we're, and I think both states are, are quite similar in this, in that we have politicians and development advocates sort of now arguing that, you know, we're in a housing crisis and that we need to be limiting local engagement or community engagement in the planning process because it's disruptive and it's holding us back and it's holding us achieving the outcomes that we need to be achieving in your opinion is this the direction the planning process should be going
1: well we are in a housing crisis without doubt we're in a housing crisis it's a long it's been a long time coming though we're in a housing crisis that's about government investment in public you know social and other mechanisms for affordable housing we're in a housing crisis that's led by issues like land banking supply that's unfulfilled and we're in a housing crisis that is led by an undersupply given population without doubt in terms of whether that should change people's rights to consultation and objection in some cases yes it should but it should be quite clear how that works and the clarity should be about certainty i feel i mean if we're going to have a situation where on the one hand community objections in certain areas, for example, certain development precincts are reduced. That's great, but we should have clarity of what, what actually is going to occur there, how we know we're going to get dividends um, from that. What's the trade-off for the community to forego a right to be participating in a process of, of understanding and imagining the city of the future compared to what we get from it? Um, if, if it's about knocking down public housing towers in order to facilitate development, private development opportunities, if it's about simply testing the limits of what the community might see as acceptable um, development and housing, uh, and particularly say things like high-rise development, which seem to be a financial vehicle as much as they are a vehicle for providing homes, or is it about actually having plans for places that are well thought through, that maximise what's delivered there, that have infrastructure provision underpinning them? and then saying to communities, we've decided this and we're going to do it, um, stop telling us no. I think that's a fundamentally different thing. We're seeing examples in, certainly in Melbourne, um, say inner Melbourne, examples like um, around North Melbourne, Arden, what we call the Arden Precinct around Fisherman's Bend, which is the south side of the Yarra River, where there's great opportunities for development that can maximise housing and ideally maximise a mix of social affordable Uh, and market housing, the the capacity for communities to be too bothered by it, if you like, can be reduced by the idea of having a clear master plan vision for what those places look like. Now, that seems a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Are we seeing that vision? Is it is it really um, likely to be fulfilled or is it likely to be given over to a, a, a property sector that's going to really want to test the limits at every single time comes along that may not supply that housing as quickly as we need it and rather might look for opportunities to invest and reinvest and sell on and, and alter those processes? We, we need a degree of certainty both in time and delivery.
0: And, and I think in those examples that you gave, You know, I I sort of agree. You know, a community can participate in the formulation of a master plan. It can have certainty if that master plan is given statutory weight. If it's got a time frame associated with it that communities can expect to see it being implemented, then yeah, that is a different scenario. But you know, say in in New South Wales, like state government just put out some amendments to its housing policy. I mean, the aim is to increase the provision of affordable housing by both the public sector and also the private sector. The policy amendments have sort of come out of the blue. It's, it's not so much concentrating um, development into one particular geographic area. It's more of a scattergun approach. If certain land or certain sites meet certain criteria, then they can be considered for a 30% bonus in floor space and a 30% bonus in height. That's if the project delivers 15% of its floor space as affordable housing, which would then be affordable housing for 15 years before it's then handed back to the developer. Communities have virtually been kept in the dark about this legislation. And to me, I can't help but think that it's, you know, it would come as a huge shock to a lot of people about how it could impact their neighbourhoods. I'm not saying that it's not right. I'm not saying that incentives, providing incentives for the provision of affordable housing is not the correct approach, but it will just seem to be um, an inadequate planning process that would look to introduce legislation like this without any type of robust community consultation, particularly because you'd want a policy like this to stay in place throughout political cycles. You'd want some certainty to it so that it was actually really going to make a nudge in the supply of housing and of, and the supply of affordable housing.
1: Yeah, and no, I agree. That, that last point you made, I think is a really good one. How, how do we create that certainty around political cycles and beyond political cycles? Because you know, the, the, the example you described, I can, I can see, Um, We had similar sort of examples discussed in Victoria around methods of reducing, I suppose, objections, if you like, is often framed that way um, in return for delivery. The idea that we trade off the city that we might kind of um, collectively create for massive increases in housing supply, affordable housing supply might be a perfectly legitimate trade off to make. I can see why we're in a moment of crisis and that's a legitimate trade-off to make. And we've seen it before. We saw it when we saw what at the time was sort of referred to as slum clearances and and the building of mass public housing around the 1950s and beyond. And um, that was a a trade-off of the sort of city that that you are a part of in order to create a collective good. It didn't always play out well in the end, of course. But the notion then that somehow this might be a fragmentary and immediate response without thinking through exactly as you suggested, how does this become the long-term norm, um, because this is a long-term problem. it brewed for a long time. It will continue for a long time. Let's set up a system that that is um, unlikely to just be at the vagaries of whether the public interest, political interest, or the interests of a property sector, but rather actually creates mechanisms to change the city into the city we want. And that's a city with housing options, including affordable housing options, but it's also one that has livable spaces and it's one that has – adequate infrastructure for communities, that's the city we want. Does it get us closer today or not? Uh, and that would always be the question worth asking. And if it's a policy process which is simply about one of those elements, it's probably not the policy process that achieves the longevity we need.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's always coming back to being able to try and to be in a position to present, I guess, holistic policy. Is it going to address the broader community concerns that people have associated with that protection of place because that protection of place isn't just one element of place. There's, there's so many different elements that come together to create places that people love and neighbourhoods that they've chosen to live in. Let's maybe switch the conversation to looking at the peri-urban fringe and, and rural areas because it's an equally fascinating um, area. Um, you've written, two, again, two excellent articles um, that deal with community tensions in fringe areas. One's titled Smells Like Politics Planning and the Inconvenient Politics of Intensive Peri Urban Agriculture, and the other, Making the Blood Broil Conflicts Over Imagined Rurality in Peri Urban Australia. Like rural Australia, it's, it's vast.
1: Indeed. And our idea of what rural, rural land uses are I mean, the, the reason I think it's got similarities to what we've just been discussing is this, again, this idea of what do we understand places to be for? And how does a, how does a planning system try and impose a particular sort of model of what's going on? How do our market and preferences impose a model and how do local communities impose a model and how are they in conflict? I'm interested in that conflict. I'm not suggesting again that there's any sides right or wrong in this, but rather that that conflict exists and it won't simply be solved by deciding that something uh, is the right thing to do. So that in the case in the two papers you were talking about, I've done, you know, work on sort of peri-urban planning issues over a long period, but the two papers you're talking to were about particularly around um, the restructure that we've seen in the um, chicken meat intensive chicken meat industry over, you know, the last decade or a bit more, sort of since the 2000s, where the intensive chicken meat industry in Victoria and elsewhere correctly got got much larger quite quickly. It moved from being on the immediate fringes of the city. Um, to significantly further away and to much larger operations, and so that shift in the business, which had already been occurring, you know, in, in stages since really since the 1970s when chicken meat became affordable and popular in Australia, had gone through a couple of waves of doing this. And by the um, 2000s, we were seeing large chicken meat complexes, if you like, of, of up to a million birds at any one time. Now that's a big farm, right, by anyone's measure. It's it's a big fun. They're normally, for for people who aren't familiar with them, they often usually operate in sort of clusters of sheds that themselves are separated out within the business. Um, That allows for a whole range of management advantages, particularly around quarantine, uh, if there's issues with that particular cluster. They're typically located in places that there's proximity to servicing, as into um, labour but also to processing. And so they need to be reasonably close. So they can't be completely in the middle of nowhere. And of course there's issues like temperature and climate that actually indicate how, what, a, what a good location for those businesses to be And They have large buffers they require, but they don't look and feel like a farm. And so, and so communities that are concerned with these businesses and who imagine, um, if I suppose, or, or really do if you live in a, a rural place that they, they consider to be about farm, particularly landscape based and land based farming, then this business looks and feels very differently. The planning systems, of course, that we have, and, and talk to the Victorian planning system here, of course, sees them as a farm. They might be an intensive farm, but nonetheless, they're a, a perfectly suitable activity to be undertaken in a rural area under the right conditions. Uh, And the community that object to them, at least, are concerned that that doesn't fit their idea. Um, So we have this tension that exists. On the one hand, someone says, well, this is a farm. And someone else says, hang on, but it's not a farm like I understand a farm to be. And it's not even like a farm like I understood a farm to exist even 10 years ago. This is not a farm that existed 10 years ago. And you're telling me it's still the same thing. It's a little bit, in, a, in an urban context, it's sort of like saying, well, there's a 20-story apartment block next to you. That's just housing, just like the one that's there already. And so we tend to take the view that, of course, we understand those aren't the same thing. But planning systems in rural areas are often a little bit less nuanced. And again, you know, we, we live in an era where, I mean, chicken meat consumption is high. Um, people want a kind of $10 roast chicken from, from a supermarket, and that's how you get one right? But, but they're going to be near someone. Now, the other side to it is that the environmental controls often mean that they don't have many offsite impacts at all, but they have considerable impacts around um, what the perception of place might be. And of course, there's a whole set of animal ethics issues underpinning a lot of people's concerns, but people are quite cautious not to build them into the planning problems. And that goes a little bit back to our discussion around apartments and the like, is that people understand what planning triggers might make good arguments for them but their anxieties are often much wider. Um, Their anxieties are about bigger infrastructure issues in that case that will never be resolved by discussions about an individual permit. And often in the same, when we look at things like um, intensive animal industries, people's anxieties and concerns are, are often bigger than the development, but the development's the point at which they can discuss it. So that's about opening up politics to bigger discussions about some of these things sometimes.
0: So how does a planning system negotiate the right to farm and operate a broiler poultry farm um, versus the right to a good life that you you, you term it the phrase again, um, amenity migrants think they deserve when they are choosing to sort of relocate out of the city to a, a peri-urban fridge?
1: Planning systems tend to try and do it through a series of of regulatory measures, which don't necessarily suit anyone. So if, if the regulatory measures are about buffer distances, times for when trucks can come and go, these places have a lot of truck movements because they've got a lot of cycling through um, and processing, feed coming in, um, poultry going out. So all of those sorts of things are... Um, and there's things probably more typical of I an mean, industrial use than a farming use. Again, so that's part of the tension. Simply regulating those things doesn't sort of solve the problem. Um, so planning systems tend to regulate them. Here's here's how you'll get certainty. There's a set of guidelines in Victoria. We have a you know a set of guidelines, and they, they specify the buffers, they specify the noise, they specify the odor, they specify all those other sorts of character. Um, and people choose locations to try and operate these businesses based on those specifications, quite rightly. And communities who are concerned about them, of course, feel that they're not really adequately getting to the heart of what the planning problems that they perceive are. And and as planners and people working in planning, many of us know that the surprising conversations you'll have with people who just don't understand why a thing would not be a planning concern, that seems to them quite obviously a planning concern. Um, And we sort of say, well, no, planning's not concerned with that issue. Um, so we 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 circumscribe what we consider to be the topic quite comfortably. Um whereas people who I talk to just, you know, in general often don't see those boundaries as being as firm as as what they are and, and, and can't understand why they why those issues of great political concern in a local community shouldn't be ones to consider. Or alternatively, they learn very well to ensure that they keep their their um, conflicts and concerns bound by those um, discussions. So, for example, not talking about ethics, talking about truck movements instead.
0: Yes, yeah. To what extent should resident objections then be regarded as legitimate?
1: This is the question. I mean, I, I would argue, of course, they should be regarded as legitimate, but we we often um, have planning systems which construct the rules by which they can be discussed and then get annoyed when people take those to their obvious extremity. And and whether it's about the poultry farms or the apartments, the rules by which we can discuss things are things, you know, I mean, the classic is, of course, let's talk about car parking. So car, car parking becomes the thing by which we measure every single dispute. But we know that underlying it, there's a whole series of other issues. A great example is when you look at the history of planning concerns around, for example, um, large places of assembly, religious worship spaces that people have clearly got some broader cultural concerns about, yet the argument gets reduced to car parking and how much noise will be there on a Friday night, right? So, so that if we're going to reduce arguments, which are really big political and cultural arguments to such simple things, we're going to have to expect that that's what people are going to argue about. Uh, and in the apartment complex one, if we're not going to talk about why we're not building enough schools for people, then we're going to talk about car parking in height and the colour of that wall, because that's what we've asked people to discuss.
0: So it's yeah again we're just always trying to hone in on one one element of it rather than holistic discussion. Yeah. Well
1: we and when I say we I mean us as the as the planning system in all its various forms we set the rules of the debate and then we get annoyed when people actually engage with it in those terms. Um it's because the because many of the real things to be talked about are, are left unsaid.
0: In your opinion what should be done to improve current engagement practices and, and to make sure they are working well as part of the planning process?
1: I, I, think the, I think the simplest is that we need to talk about things with certainty and confidence earlier on. So so we, we shouldn't be wasting people's time in engaging with big strategic visioning exercises that then get brushed off in the future. We should be actually trying to think carefully and confidently about what sort of engagement people should be having and what sort of certainty we should be getting from that. I think we just see way too many examples where people are invited to be part of a bigger strategic visioning exercise and then five years down the track, the things they see happen just seem entirely contrary to it. There there can be reasons for that. I understand there can be reasons why things change. COVID is a great example where we saw dramatic changes in a very short time in how people live, how people use the city and all the rest of it. But for the most part, there are no not issues earlier on. The housing crisis in Australian cities is, is a 25-year-old exercise. We've known it for that long. We know what to do about it. The movement towards um, urban densification in various forms is again about a 25-year-old exercise in cities like Sydney or Melbourne. Um, we've known for a long, long time. Even, even in the 1990s in Victoria, where we were closing schools in inner Melbourne at the same time as building increased uh, urban density, we knew it would be a problem. Yeah. So, so we know these things. They're not they're not news to us. And so, we need to to have those long term decisions, and then some degree of certainty about those long term decisions. And and again, I'd say a lot of problems can be resolved by genuinely investing in, in social and other forms of public infrastructure that actually meet people's needs because there's way too many places in Australian cities where the delivery of the services we need just takes too long.
0: Andrew, I'd really love to hear your thoughts about how we should be reaching out and incorporating the research that, you know, our academic community is undertaking, people like yourself, I mean, your your papers are fabulous to read, but I don't feel they're necessarily getting through to government um, and it would just seem to be a wasted opportunity. What, what's your what's your view?
1: I suppose there's a couple of things in it. I mean, obviously, most people involved in this industry have been through university education, heard from various academics around these issues and, and, and academics certainly don't, like, you know, have any kind of particularly special um, opportunity to have a say about things that are really about politics and communities, for sure. But I think we have a really rich vein of academic research into urban issues in Australia that often doesn't get translated very well into policy or even into broader community debates. So I've got colleagues who've been writing about all of these issues, housing affordability, how planning systems operate around how large major projects work over a very long time. And usually discussing these is quite complex issues rather than trying to reduce them to simplistic debates. The, the research translation exercise, I suppose, is difficult, particularly when, when universities often encourage us to, to publish in ways which are really only read by each other and our students. But I've got some students who are doing really great work on looking at you know, climate resilience in cities, how urban um, formations and operations work, our planning systems work, which again, we're very keen to talk um, to wider audiences uh, wherever possible, particularly through things like conferences from you know, organisations like PIA and um, the Planning Institute of Australia and others. But the, the sense that academic research can offer something valuable to public policy debates, I think is one that does need some more work there. And often the responses of academic researchers are often decried as being problematic and elitist, but I reckon if most people talked to people doing this research and read what they're doing, they'll understand that there's some really genuine and honest appraisals of what's occurring, um, sometimes presented in ways which are unwilling to hide the complexity of them. Um, And so working out ways to actually reduce some of that complexity to to simple answers is a challenge. Um, But I feel that we're really in an era where we need to try and get hold of information from all the sources that we can uh, and have have some genuine debates. I mean, classic ones are about things like transport planning. You know, how how should we best spend the money we have? Where do we get the best returns? Uh, Should we be just providing things the way we've always done them because that's what people want to do? Or should we be looking for alternatives? We can see some really good research in those fields. that actually is empirical, it's defendable, and we can actually use it to try and shape the sorts of things we want to do. Now, uh, is it being seen by policymakers? Is it being seen by the community? Quite often in a sort of a quote from someone in an article, um, in a news article, for example, but but not very often in in the ways that that academic would want it to be read. Um, and I think there's a bit of work in that. Of course, you know, we're also educators and and. Plenty of um, students and graduates might be listening to this show. I'd encourage them to, to remember when we ask you to read these things and consider keeping doing it. So, so that's also, it's also on um, practitioners to actually engage with these things too. And it's not always going to be delivered in the forms that you find most convenient, but rather you need to reach out and start thinking about these issues as being complex ones, not ones that can be solved simply and quickly.
0: Are you, as in, I mean, I'm just sort of interested. I mean, are you ever approached by government policymakers uh, to participate in focus groups?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been. I mean, I've been on. Very, I've been on the Victorian Planning Technical Working Group prior to our current planning reforms. I um, often discussed issues with, say, ministerial advisors and the like in, in Victoria. I don't think many policymakers always understand what could be available, but they equally have their own constraints around what they. I suppose what information can and should become evidence for them. I mean, there's a, there's some complexities there about what constitutes evidence for policy making versus what might constitute evidence for academic research, and they're not the same thing. And I think we need to realise that. And certainly, our own, with our research group here at RMIT, things like looking at health and livability indicators or urban greening strategies have have made their way well into public policy here. Uh, whether they're being delivered on the ground is always attention, but they're around. You know, issues like sort of twenty-minute neighbourhoods and those sorts of things have have used a lot of the sorts of information that come from the research that we do here as as benchmarking for what they want to do. Um, so I, I do think there's um, areas where we're seeing some good impact, um, but certainly around things like planning systems and planning system reforms, which we've been talking about here. But we tend to see this as a sort of a quite a defensive tactic from government. There's not a not a strong willingness to actually break this open and say, what's going wrong here that we need to fix? It's normally about, the solutions. normally about, let's close down one more area of debate. And I think if we were to talk through the sort of research that I'm doing, we would come to the point of view to say that closing down one more point of debate is only going to leave one more point of discussion that needs to be solved in future. So let's actually talk about this in a different way.
0: Yeah it would just seem to be a lost opportunity because I I know just in my you know brief exposure into the Property Council, the Urban Development Institute of Australia, yes they commission a lot of research as well but it would seem, and and their papers get through to government, it would just seem to be a little bit of a lost opportunity.
1: I do think, I mean I do think there's some things have come and certainly in recent times in terms of urban issues. um, The Grattan Institute's been writing a lot um, which probably offers a a more balanced perspective on those things. Um, City Futures at the University of New South Wales, our own Centre for Urban Research, and other academic air, um, research areas that do certainly produce, um, you know, to to the public and to policymakers, policy briefings. We often have public presentations and discussions and debates around things like transport topics. There's usually a kind of a fairly limited audience of those, but there's certainly an enthusiastic audience from the public. And I think that information's there to be had. Um, There's a little bit of time pressure and the regular pressures we've seen. But then in the last couple of years, we've seen a turnaround, for example, in people's willingness to be engaged in, say, online briefing sessions. Here in Victoria, the Planning Institute, certainly during a um, period where more people were working from home, had some really good weekly briefings with various practitioners and academics and others, which exposed a lot of people to the things that they probably only would have seen if they'd gone to a conference, you know, once every couple of years. So there's a little bit more of that kind of engagement, I think, is going on, and that's a healthy thing. Um, and so, and even something like this thing that you're um, recording with me today, um, becomes a vehicle for that sort of thing as well. So I think um, I think there's a bit of a, a changed opportunity um, from the old model of reading an academic journal or come to a conference. But that said, we've got to also recognise the limits of what policymakers need. And the, the, um, it's not always just about having more and more academic information. It's about having it presented in ways that that make sense to them.
0: Thanks so much, Andrew. I have really enjoyed our discussion today. It's been really wonderful to have you join us and uh, be able to, I guess, break down these issues of community tension in both um, our, our cities and on the rural and urban fringe and to hear your thoughts about how we can, I guess, work towards a better outcome and a better integration of engagement into the planning process.
1: Thanks, Belinda. It's been great to talk to you. And I, mean, I think, you know, these are these are these are complex issues. They're not easily solved. And certainly just simply casting people as sort of, you know, problems or not problems is is, is really never going to solve it for us. So I think it's 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 about a nuanced discussion and an understanding. So thanks a lot for your time.
0: Our pleasure. During the year we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like to hear about please send it through via the urban talk website or email me directly at belinda at for updates on urban talk you can follow us on facebook instagram and linkedin if you have enjoyed the podcast please consider leaving a review on your podcast app of choice to help the show my name is belinda barnett and thank you for listening to the urban talk podcast